Saint is without a doubt the most familiar, and that's not without good reason, for it's the most understandable section of the entire book. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation contain what are commonly referred to as the letters to the seven churches. Now, that in itself is a bit of a misnomer because the entire book of Revelation is actually a letter to the seven churches. But these chapters do contain individualized messages that were addressed to specific congregations. And uh, as we've already noted, Revelation as a whole was not just intended for those seven churches. It was intended for all the churches in Asia Minor and even for us today. And that's true of these seven individualized messages. They do speak of specific conditions that existed in actual churches in 95 A.D. But again, that does not limit their application to us any more than reading the uh, rest of the New Testament, which is primarily letters written to individual churches, limits its application to us today. So when we read these letters to the churches, let's be hearing them as if they're being written to us. I think we can benefit greatly from them. Because sadly, the same problems that existed in churches of the first century still exist in churches today. So the counsel in Scripture is still needed, and it is extremely relevant. Now, I mentioned these two chapters are the easiest in Revelation to understand. And uh, there's a reason for that. They're written in the most straightforward style of any of the chapters of Revelation. They do contain some symbolism, especially in the introductions, where they identify the author of the messages as the one seen in the vision of chapter 1. But the heart of the messages can be readily understood without trying to visualize things or try to interpret symbols. Because... These two chapters were not communicated through visions. These two chapters, Paul was simply told to write what he heard, not what he saw. The earlier section, he said he was told, write what you see. Now he was just told what to write. And they're very direct messages from Christ to the churches. And they all follow a very similar pattern. They're all addressed to the angel, or as we noted last week, perhaps the preacher of each congregation. And the author is referred to by a reference to some aspect of his nature as revealed in that vision of chapter 1. John then makes clear, or Jesus then makes clear, that he has intimate knowledge of each congregation, commending it for those things that are commendable and warning it about those things that are not. And the message is closed with a promise to the faithful, a promise to those who will overcome what they're having to face. Now, some have suggested that these messages were written separate from the rest of Revelation because they're so different and that perhaps they were sent to the churches individually before John actually even received the revelation. But that's, that's highly unlikely. I think the individual messages are, are far too short. 
uh, to have been sent as individual letters. I don't think they had postcards in those days. And John's constant reference to the vision of chapter 1 ties them intimately to the Revelation. So instead of trying to divorce these chapters from the rest of the Revelation, I think interpreters would be much better off if they would use these chapters of Revelation to put it in its proper historical setting. And again, that's what we're trying to do by showing the videos uh, each Sunday for the seven weeks. It's important that we ground the book of Revelation in history and reality. People have a tendency to, to dismiss Revelation as being a fantasy. It's not. It was written to actual churches addressing actual problems using visions to communicate the truth Christ wanted communicated. Well, this morning, we come to the message addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus, a hardworking, faithful church. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Now, as we saw in the video, Ephesus was a most important city. In fact, it was known as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. The Vanity Fair, for those of you who studied Pilgrim's Progress, it was the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. It had the best harbor on the coast of Asia Minor and was a hub for the roadways that led throughout the province. So it was actually the gateway to all of Asia Minor. As we've also seen, it was home to the temple of Artemis, or Diana, who was literally the sex goddess of the ancient world. People came to the temple from all over the known world to worship and to be involved in some very questionable activities that took place in the temple. It was a center of religious prostitution. The temple was also a sanctuary for any criminal of the entire province who could get there. If they could get there, they were safe. Well, add to that the fact that Ephesus was also the chief seat of emperor worship and a center for occult magical arts. And you get some idea of the challenge faced by the church there. It was a church that was filled with immorality and with sin. But for the most part, the church was up to the challenge. The church had been in existence for nearly 50 years by the time this letter was written, and it had become the most prominent church in the world, more prominent even than the church in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul had founded the church in Ephesus and had spent more time working personally with that church than any other. It had also come under the ministries of Timothy, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, and, of course, 
the Apostle John. In fact, tradition tells us that John spent nearly a quarter of a century in Ephesus. And that he had brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Ephesus. Ephesus, And that she actually died and was buried there. Well, it was to this church that the first message was addressed. And it was sent from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the living Christ, who holds the destiny of the churches in his hand, and who not only stands among them, but walks among them, keeping a watchful, vigilant eye upon them. And he begins by saying that he knows their deeds. He knows what they're doing. He knows their way of life. He knows their conduct. And he's particularly pleased with their toil and their perseverance. You know, being salt and light in a place like Ephesus wasn't easy. But they were known for their perseverance. They didn't give up. They wouldn't let the sin in the city silence them or overwhelm them. And not only did they persevere in the face of outside opposition, they persevered in the face of internal opposition as well. You know, whenever a church is effectively doing what the Lord called it into existence to do, you can bet the forces of evil will be rallied against it. And the most effective strategy is to attack from within. Jesus had warned the apostles of the fact that false prophets would come in sheep's clothing. And Paul had specifically warned the Ephesian elders that grievous wolves would invade the flock. And indeed, this had happened in Ephesus. Itinerant preachers and teachers, the counterpart to today's TV evangelists and religious authors, had come to Ephesus and were trying to influence the church. They were calling themselves apostles, trying to set themselves in positions of power and influence and authority. But the elders in the church put them to the test and found them to be false. They had faithfully applied the test given in Scripture, and these so-called apostles had failed the test. Now, what the tests were, we aren't told. It could be that... Their theology was faulty. That they didn't recognize that Jesus had actually come in the flesh and therefore shared in the spirit of the Antichrist, according to 1 John 4. Their fruits may not have been good, and they may have held to immoral, evil practices and thus been judged false prophets, according to Matthew 7 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Or they may have simply not been willing to let their so-called prophecies be subject to the known prophecies and teachings of previously recognized prophets and apostles as required in 1 Corinthians 14. For whatever reason, they had been found to be false. And they were not endured by the church. In fact, some years later, Ignatius would write that the church at Ephesus was so well taught that no unorthodox sect could gain a hearing among our members. It's a great commendation for a well-taught church. So they've done a good job. A good job maintaining purity of morals in the midst of a very immoral society and purity of teaching in the midst of heresy. But all was not well. 
in the church at Ephesus. For it had become a church that had lost love. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now that phrase is hard to wrap our head around. The phrase, left your first love, is open to interpretation. Some suggest it might indicate that the church had simply lost that initial flush of zeal or enthusiasm for evangelism. Or that the church had stopped loving Jesus. Or some other high priority in the church. And those are all possibilities. But I think the phrase could be better translated, lost the love you had at first. And therefore, refers to the brotherly love that had once been evident in the church. You know, when Paul wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus, he made special mention of the love they had for all the saints. So they had been a very loving church. In fact, Paul was actually ministering to them when he wrote the love chapter. In 1 Corinthians 13, he probably preached it to them and perhaps gained illustrations for it from them. They'd been grounded in love. But something had happened. They had lost their love for one another. And it's not too hard to imagine how it happened. You know, with all the attacks they'd been facing, both from without and within, and with the constant need for scrutiny as to someone's orthodoxy, it's easy to see how they become hard and narrow. As one commentator put it, their heresy hunting may have killed love. And that's a real possibility. It's not always easy to know where to draw the lines of fellowship. You know, it's obvious that good and evil, that light and darkness cannot fellowship together. But sometimes our definitions of light and darkness differ. And it's all too often the fact that the tests of orthodoxy given in Scripture don't seem to be sufficient to us. So we add to the tests and begin viewing as orthodox only those who believe and practice exactly what we believe and practice. And then as we view others with a suspicious eye, we begin to think they're viewing us the same way. So we withdraw from each other. We keep our distance we keep our guard up for fearing that someone might hear us say or do something they would frown upon. Obviously, that's no way to build a loving church or to even maintain one. But what do you do? What do you do? How do you balance love with vigilance and purity of faith? Well, I think we find our answer in the next few verses where we're told of the need for and the way back to love. Verses 5 through 7. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. 
Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's impossible for a church without love to hold high the light of Christ. Therefore, he here warns the church in Ephesus that unless it repents and starts loving again, he will remove their lampstand. He will extinguish their flame. But how can they do that? How do you start loving again when love is gone it's gone, isn't it? That's what we're told. But don't believe it. It's a lie of the devil. Love can be brought back into our homes and into our churches. All we have to do is remember, repent, and return. We have to remember that early love for couples is the romance. For churches, it's the warm fellowship. Remember how it was in the early days when you first felt loved by Christ and therefore loved everyone and everything that had anything to do with them. Remember that first love. And repent. Accept full responsibility for the fact that you let love slip away. Don't blame anyone else. Don't blame the church or the preacher or a circle of friends in the church who let you down. Take responsibility for letting love slip through your fingers in the church and perhaps in the home. And then do something about it. So what do you do? You return. That's another word for repent. Repent can be translated return. You return to doing the same deeds that you did at first. That means you act in a loving manner. You start treating your wife the same way you did when you were trying to win her affections in the first place. That may take a lot of remembering for some of us. And then go out of your way to demonstrate love to your brothers and sisters. Make every effort to show the love and forgiveness to others that Christ has shown to you. That is how you rekindle love. You act in a loving manner, whether you feel like it or not. We're not commanded how to feel. We're commanded how to act. And it's not hypocritical to act in a loving manner, even when we don't feel it. We're responding in obedience to the commands of Christ when we act in a loving manner. And the miracle of it all is that if we will consistently act in a loving manner, we will eventually feel love as well. We can bring love back. 
But again, what about that balance we talked about? We can't let ourselves get so loving and accepting that anything goes, that we don't uphold purity of life and purity of faith. We can't, we can't just say, well, let's just love everybody. And let's ignore those, those issues. Some issues cannot and must not be ignored. You know, several years ago, I had to break fellowship with a group of preachers because they welcomed a Unitarian preacher who didn't even believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And I shared with them the scripture that insisted that we not receive anyone who denies that Christ came to earth in the flesh. They objected. And one clergyman said, now, 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 what would Jesus do? (laughs) You know, asking what would Jesus do is not a bad practice. As long as you know what Jesus did and would therefore do. He didn't just act on emotion. He acted on principle and the authority of God's word when it came to matters of purity. And faith. And when it came to purity of life, he separated the sinner from the sin. That's why we love the sinner, but hate the sin. You know, Christ commended the Ephesians for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we'll learn about them when we come to the message of the church at Pergamum. But for now, I want you just to Acknowledge the fact that the Ephesians were not being commended for hating the Nicolaitans, but for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And God didn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hated what they were doing. That's an important distinction to make. We may have to cut ourselves off from fellowship with someone because of his deeds. Because of things that he proclaims that he teaches. But we should do so only as a means of calling attention to his sin in the hopes of leading him to repentance and restoration. It should never be a statement of contempt for him or her as a person. We must always love the sinner while hating the sin. We uphold purity of life and faith while loving everyone. I think the Apostle John set the example for this. And the example comes from a couple of stories that have been handed down about his uh, later years. One recounts how that he adamantly refused to stay under the same roof with a known heretic, Serenthus. If he knew he was there, John refused to go in. He made it very clear he would not be seen In his company. But then on the other side, when he was so feeble that he couldn't walk and he had to be carried into church, he would repeat over and over and over again a simple statement. Little children love one another. He preached and he practiced love, but he knew there was a need for discernment. He did them both. We need to love 
like that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If we would find victory in Christ and share for all eternity in the paradise of God, it should be obvious that we must have love. And while we might debate where paradise is and what it's like, all would agree that paradise is where our Lord is. And if God is love, it's imperative that we have love in our heart if we would fellowship with him forever. So how do we get love in our heart? Especially for those we don't like. And how do we, how do we rekindle love for the family of God? Well, we get it back into our heart by making certain that Jesus is in our heart. And if you've not invited him into your heart, or if you need to simply invite him in again, because maybe you've pushed him off somewhere, I encourage you to do that. This is a message from the risen Christ to Chatham Christian Church. Let me come into your heart. Let me rekindle love if it's been fading in your home and your church. Little children love one another. I like that image. I like that image. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've not invited Christ into your heart, I would encourage you to do so. If you need to be washed clean of your sin, that's what baptism is all about. And then the loving, holy, risen Christ will come into your heart and change you. Come into our heart, Lord Jesus.